So our job is just to be where, where things are and respond appropriately to them and to offer guidance and teaching, but also make sure that the, the Sangha is getting what it needs. And if possible, that everybody's sticking together, you know, f- finding ways that people feel they can show up for practice, but also they, they want a human connection, even if it's faces on a screen. So they want to also have some informal component of just being with one another. Lizzie Coombs, Jita Popesneem, started practicing with the Quantum School of Zen in 1987 while living in America. In 2010, she moved back to the United Kingdom, her country of origin. In 2018, she received Inca, or permission to teach from Zen master Song Yang, and now she is the guiding teacher of the York Zen Group and the Peak Zen Center. She's also the Buddhist chaplain at the University of Durham. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. So Lizzie, this is kind of a tough, it's tough for me to start an interview this way, but to go any other direction feels like I'm avoiding like the topic that is really most present, right? Which is, you know, we've postponed this interview because your husband just passed away a couple months ago. I'm not exactly sure how long you guys were married, but it a while. I know that. And so here you are in this new part of your life. And I, I guess my desire to sort of talk about it right at the beginning so as not to come at it at somewhere in the, you know, <laughs> I guess any question is like, here you are, you're a Zen teacher who has been experiencing grief and going through the, the process of grief, of losing your partner. And for those people who are listening and, you know, struggling with their practice and struggling with their own sense of grief. I'm curious if there's anything that's in your experience, in your practice right now, that is sort of guiding, guiding your life, right? As we, you know, as you walk into this new stage. 
Well, there's certainly a, a grounding that comes from uh, Zen practice and my experience of Zen over um, these decades. Um, I would certainly say there's no salvation as such. There's no way to, nor should there be any way uh, around suffering or grief. Um, and everybody uh, who I have talked to about this, um, often not Zen people, have said you just go through it and it's you have no idea how it's going to be from one day to the next or one part of the day to the next. It just, things will appear and then they will disappear. And I began to realize, oh, this is, this is very familiar. This, this too appears and disappears even on a moment to moment, uh, level. And thus it was throughout the, uh, just over six years of my husband's illness. And thus it was over the total of 24 plus years of our marriage and going back as far as you want. So in some ways, what's happening now isn't, my response is no different from uh, how it has been and how I watched my husband with Roger uh, going through what he went through. But I think that the any illusion that there's any um, control, and perhaps that's what I meant by salvation, you know, something that will take me out of it or beyond it, or I'll have enough tools in my toolkit now, surely, 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 that I don't actually have to really be with this profound sense of aloneness. You know, me in an empty house, in a rather, not completely empty, but rather emptied out city because we're on lockdown in COVID, um, not being able to have anyone come into the house beyond a very few prescribed people and not being able to go into anybody else's house. It's, it's all profoundly strange, you know, and I think all that I can do is uh, keep on breathing, keep on doing my practice. Sometimes that completely falls away. Sometimes I'm not even sure if I'm breathing, but I must be because I'm still alive. Sometimes I get tremendous comfort from sitting in front of um, the uh, my altar, which has the Buddha on it. Um, and I still, and perhaps will continue to have for a while, a photograph of Roger uh, there too. And I can look into his eyes and I can look into the Buddha's face. And even though they aren't, they are just you know, representations of something, that something is very much present. I think there's a fantasy that practitioners sometimes dwell in. And I mean, you even hear it in some of the stories where, you know, some suffering has happened and the teacher is crying mm -hmm. and the students are like, why are you crying? Aren't it? Why haven't you transcended this? And, and I think part of the suffering or part of the, um, the fantasy is that this practice is going to somehow allow us not to feel sadness and loneliness. I think you can come at it from the other way, which is that if you, uh, without inundating someone else with your feelings of whatever they are, loss, grief, and so on. But if, if you acknowledge, even subtly, that that 
is your reality. It's amazing how almost everybody has something that they too are struggling with. You know, um, I, I have had quite a lot of people, uh, they, mostly they're younger Sangha members, but they'll talk about, I lost a parent this year or, you know, ill parents or some kind of loss like that or job loss or loss of their own health. And, and so I think it's, it's, we have to be delicate about it. You know, not, as I say, not, uh, know where the boundaries are. But nevertheless, if you can just say that, you know, people know that this is the re- reality for myself, this particular situation, grieving, uh, becoming a widow, having dealt with someone, been with someone with a chronic illness, which is quite exhausting for both partners. Um, you, you just realize that you are not alone. I am not alone in this situation. And to pretend otherwise or to act as if it's not really happening or, hey, you know, I'm okay because I sit, I bow, I do extra bows, I do extra chanting, I do so much extra chanting that actually I'm on, I'm flying, I'm through this. Then you've left, you've left not only yourself behind, but you've left your bodhisattva bow in the dust Mm. because that's what it's really talking about. It's talking about no, we are all one, and 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 to to try and get ourselves out of it, we're then profoundly separated, and we're not honouring any of our vows, and we're falsely claiming that uh, we are not even mm, fully human. I don't know quite where, quite what I was going to say, but but there's something we perpetuate a myth that actually literally is a myth but it's not it's not a true it's not a helpful myth put on your robe sit still and nothing will ever touch you we're not that kind of school and that's not our teaching it's just having to be careful about you know not putting anything inappropriate on anyone else and listening mostly 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 most of what i do is i'm just listening to people and this trying to listen to myself you know, I appreciated that you sort of connecting it to the bodhisattva vow, right? That, you know, when you when you said not fully human, to me it's somehow there's a a false impulse to, that we can transcend the humanness. And okay. I think with the vow, it's like, to me anyway, it's how can I be so human? How can I be all human, you know? Mm-hmm. Like this is this is what I am. But there also, I think we also have to respect, though, that there's a formal quality to practice and to uh, the various roles that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And to, 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 we have to weave it all together and we have to be very skillful at knowing at any moment, where are we? You know, am I right now a, a friend? Am I a practitioner? Am I a, widow am i a teacher am i a what and and that's part of the coming and going also is that we aren't any one of those things we have to just take on that role for as long as it's helpful and necessary then we quickly or immediately go on to the next thing that's put in our path to respond to don't you think 
Yeah. And, you know, there's this, I, I often quote, there's a, a Lutheran minister here in the, the United States um, named Nadia Bowles uh, Weber. Is that right? I, I feel like I'm <laughs> forgetting right now. Um, but I, uh, she has this quote, and I think it's helpful for people who are clergy, uh, teachers, um, that we preach from our scars and not from our wounds. And I think that can be, a, it's a really, sometimes people expect teachers to be, well, I mean, you already know that there's a big expectation on teachers. But yeah, to preach from your wounds is to is to really put the put it out onto the people who've come, like share this burden with me, which is a it's a it's a dicey place to be. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard, yeah, to listen to yourself is uh, such a grief is such a tough one, and especially as you said at this time, the pandemic. There's so much isolation and loneliness and. Such such a hard time. When you gave your Inca speech in 2018, I you know, I went back and listened to it. And one of the things that was so beautiful about it is you used the um your husband was a, a scholar of uh, Hasatani, is that right? Hokusai was Hokusai. Hokusai. That's okay. He he was actually a, a scholar of all uh, Japanese woodblock print artists, but he ended up inheriting a lot of stuff that scholarship that needed to be done about Hokusai. It wasn't actually his favorite artist by any means, but he just took it on because that was the kind of guy he was. So anyway, yes, <laughs> the Inca speech and the Great Wave. Yep, the Great Wave. Yeah, and and so for people who are um, not familiar. Hokusai, it's this great way with Mount Fuji in the background. Probably everybody who's listening to it has seen the image, whether they know who made the print or what it's called. It's literally everywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And you were talking about, at that point, Roger was very ill or was ill. Mm -hmm. And you you talked about the men in the boats, the fishermen. Mm -hmm who are sort of sailing through this very intimidating water and the power of Sangha um, to carry you through uh, difficult times. And, you know, here we are, we're in this sort of zoom world right now. Mm-hmm. And it's funny cause I feel like some people have resisted the zoom. And on the other hand, I've, met people who, you know, I lead a sitting every morning and it's from people all over the world and they have never, they are so bonded to one another. Like we're these fishermen in a boat getting through this crazy storm. With a job to do. And that's part of what's going on in that, in that image is those people are fishermen and they job depends on getting the fresh fish which they brought they're bringing inland from the boat that did the actual fishing they're just the carrier boats with the fish taking it quickly to shore so everything depends on them not only getting through the wave any in this picture but every day they have to do this 
big job of getting the fish home, which means they all have to cooperate, which is different from if they were just on a sailing boat, you know, oh my gosh, here we are, we're having a great time in Massachusetts Bay, and oh my God, there's suddenly a massive wave. Oh no, they're, they're highly skilled at cooperation, and that's what they've been brought up to do, and that's what they're trying. So if we just run that out a little further, what do you think our job is? You know, here we are clinging to this Zoom, <laughs> this Zoom cooperation. Like, what's our job? Yeah. In this? Are you talking about us as in uh, formal sangha groups? Sure. Let's say that people who are practicing. Well, yeah. Well, I'm just going by experience and experiment, as many other people are doing, mm. and uh, and our our sangha has has grown as a result of uh, Zoom, right. um, but also um, people's inability to travel to practice elsewhere. And so we, we have people, like you probably do, in our sangha, sort of paid-up members, who we will rarely actually see in person because of where they live. Um, so that's really interesting. So our job is just to uh, be where where things are and respond appropriately to them. And so, first of all, our sangha has grown quite a bit because people can't get to real practice, uh, you know, literal face-to-face practice. And um, they also are feeling isolated. And they're also casting around for a practice. And they've, some people are shopping, you know, they've been to other uh, groups and some people have landed here and this is where they want to be. Some people are still looking around or doing more than one thing. But but my job is to just continue to be here to offer practice uh, and be responsive to the other people in the boat, you know, and to to um to offer guidance and teaching, but also make sure that the the Sangha is getting what it needs. And if possible, that everybody's sticking together, you know, finding ways that people feel they can show up for practice, but also they they want a human connection, even if it's faces on a screen. So they want to also have some informal component of just being with one another. Yeah, it's... Funny because you know I finished leading practice just before we got on this call, because um, it's you know eight thirty in the morning for me now. Mm-hmm. It's afternoon time for you in in the UK, and there was a we've started doing this conversation after the sitting, which is not actually typical for us here at the Cambridge Zen Center. Usually we do a reading and there's no commentary, but because so many people are new, it's not even that they're like searching really for anything. They're just, they're just, it's almost like dry soil and it's just what they're looking for water. And so we've started this conversation afterwards. And so we read a little passage from uh, some Zen master. We're reading Banke right now. And then we sort of talk about what it is. And it was funny because people started saying nice things about me and I, I had this moment of like, oh, 
Oh, I just turn on the Zoom. <laughs> I, I, I do the reading, but I just turn on the Zoom. I do the reading. And it actually, I feel so the teach, as you said, that there's something that happens in the group that makes it so much bigger and better than if I were just trying to navigate this pandemic on my own. I think solo practice is really important because it sort of tests your determination and some of that. And I think that's good to test. Um, but the insight that comes from Sangha work is, well, I just find it enlivening mm-hmm. for me, for my practice, enlivening for my practice. Yeah. I think that all those stories about um, people who went up the mountain and did their solo retreats, that was all mm-hmm. very necessary. But as long as they weren't practicing with anyone else or living with anyone else, they didn't get to see you know, the, the elephant in, in their room until they mm-hmm. reemerged. And that's what, what we have to keep on doing, really. Otherwise, what's the point? Because again, it circles back to the bodhisattva vow, but also humans. We're, we're very social people. And so I guess that brings me to the larger question. You know, we, I asked sort of what's our purpose as we relate to, you know, just practitioners, mm-hmm. but just following that one step further like here we are we're doing all of this practice so many people are practicing now it's really amazing (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, i think partly because it has been so easy for them to connect Mm -hmm. but what's our purpose like what is the purpose of all of this practice or how do you see that impacting us leaving the pandemic i hope you know at some point Mm -hmm. Well, we've got five precepts, but actually there are also something called the three pure precepts. You probably have heard about them and they probably call, they're called other, you know, they're called by slightly different names. But anyway, number one is like, I vow to do no harm. Number two is I vow to do good. And number three, you can write as I vow to actualize good in others or save all sentient beings. So um, that all, those are all words, aren't they? And the Christian message and all of the major religions, or maybe the minor religions too, they all have elements of that because, again, we're human beings. How on earth are we all going to get on together? And if we just look into those very closely, we see that actually every day you can just... Um, have those things in your mind and you can check with yourself oh am i harming and sometimes of course it's not easy to not harm and and then there's the issue of what is harm but you don't want to go into an infinite regressive cycle right. you just have to get up in the morning and just for yourself and with yourself by yourself and in connection with anyone you encounter or any being Try those things and see what happens. You know, and then it gets more specific the more precepts you look into. So it doesn't matter whether we're doing uh, COVID work or post-COVID work. 
or anything. It, it really matters before we die that we just give it a good shot at uh, being completely human, using practice to help that. And then why are we practicing? We're practicing because we want to not harm, because that harms us. And we also want to do good. And we don't have to be too fancy about, oh, well, what does good mean? Is that good with a capital G or good with a small g? We, we know when we're uh, messing up. And, and people are very sensitive people. So even on Zoom, if you say something un, you know, uh, unkind or it can be unintentionally unkind, but you say the wrong thing, you can look at people and you can see you've had an effect. You've hit this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't want that. We really want to not be all lovey dovey, but we want to be real with people and we want to help as best we can. Mm-hmm. And I found quite a few times I would go into <laughs> go into Zen interviews as a, a student and I would the answer to the Kongan would be, How may I help you? I said, mm-hmm. how may I help you having hit the ground? And just saying, ha, ha, nail that. And then the teacher would say, I don't want your help. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, so of course there's lots of situations where uh, what is helping, you know, what is doing good. But that's for us to figure out too, using precepts, practice, and vows. You mentioned Christianity, which perhaps was the faith that you were born into or or at least in you know that was it's the dominant religion of the nation you're from as is mine and you mentioned how all of these religions seem to have you know these general precepts of you know finding your way finding the truth and doing no harm and improving the world and I'm wondering if, you know, what it was about Zen that helped you decide this was the path for you when you looked at that vow and you, and you said, this is the practice. This is the one that I, I think will help me realize that. that uh, I, I didn't, I didn't come at it from that direction initially. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, what happened was, that I kept being nagged to come to um, a Zen practice group by the friend who was running it. After a couple of years, I finally just thought, oh, okay, to shut her up, I'm just going to go and do this thing. And and I was given very simple meditation instruction, and I just sat down and I did it. And as soon as I did it, in that moment, it was like, oh, my gosh. I don't even know where I went, but I went somewhere. Um, and I didn't even know one that was a place that one would go. And obviously since then I realized, well, actually you keep on coming back. It doesn't matter what your experience is, but the experience was of a quality where I couldn't just, just ignore it. So that was actually the thing that got me going. And then the next thing that, uh, happened was I, I just kept showing up 
for practice. And I kept listening, listening really, really hard. I was waiting to hear the thing that would turn me off, actually, that would make me realize, oh, this is another cult. This is another, there's another guru here. There's, there's something inauthentic about this. I can't, I'm not going to follow this or, you know, whatever along those lines. And, and I didn't hear that. I didn't, I didn't, I, I certainly encountered personalities. I encountered all too human people in our school. Um, but I, I didn't from the teachings themselves hear anything that I couldn't completely sign up to. And then I think slowly seeping in was, was the idea of, yes, yeah, so why are you doing this? Why, why, what is this about? But it wasn't, it wasn't foremost. I didn't come at it from that bodhisattva vow direction. Lizzie, when I was prepping for this interview, I was reading a blog post that you wrote about a solo retreat you did in uh, Western Mass. And I think solo retreats are very intimidating for people. Um, I mean, retreats in general, I think are intimidating for people who haven't sat a lot of them or any of them. And I'm just curious if there was something about the idea of a solo retreat or um, what you thought you might gain from doing a solo retreat that, that you would like to share with us? Mm. Well, it was all a big setup from Zen Master Song Hyang. So I'm going to lay all the blame <laughs> yeah, on her. Yeah. And any merit comes to, to and from her. Um, so she, she recommended it and she said, and why don't you do it in the winter? Because um, there are less bugs then. <laughs> no, she said there are less, less bugs then, you know, and, and, oh, yeah. and uh, it'll be more comfortable for you. So, mm -hmm. so I said, yes, okay, I'll do that. And I went up and there was a huge, huge snowstorm that really snowed me in. Oh. And, um, and so my, my, uh, frequent experience of that retreat day in, day out was, uh, fear, sometimes shading into terror and sometimes being just not very pleasant feelings of, <sighs> you know, I, I kept the practice going for all but one day and I just decided to see what would happen if I didn't do it at all and it was a total disaster mm. so that I immediately had to go back to lots of bows lots of chanting um, some sitting walking and working but I did find that the value came from getting very very close to oneself and all of one's worst bits if I could put it that way I had no idea that I could hold that much terror and not die, <laughs> and um, and it kept on like that. And then one day, I decided I had to leave. So I thought the first thing to do is reconnoiter. So I hiked down to the road through the heavy snow, and I came to a bit of the road where there wasn't so much snow. And I thought, oh, okay, so I could I could pack my bags, and I could probably hike along this road, and I could hitch back to some area of civilization if civilization still exists beyond the snow. And something in me just looked at that road and said, salvation lies back up the hill. 
And it mm. was that very, very clear. And I was doing a particular Kongan at the time that involved how do you, how do you get through something? Mm-hmm. And it just all came together. And I, so I went back up the hill and then it was still hard and various other things happened. And at one point I had to actually, I made a phone call to my husband and just said, this is just terrible. What do you suggest? He said, well, if you want to come home, come home. I can come and get you. But if you can stay for another few days, you'll have done it. It's like, okay, I can do this. I can kept going. But <laughs> I've made a phone call. From the <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just yeah. need someone, you know, sometimes yeah. you need the person that sent you off and, that, mm-hmm. you know, and then you report back to if you feel like it. But you need someone in your corner who just doesn't care whether you do it or not. They just want to know that you can be okay. But if you can, if they sense in you that you can do this, then you do it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that was my experience. And, that, and it was the quality of the fact that a solo retreat, just me by myself, could bring up so much stuff, which was extraordinary because I'd only ever experienced lots and lots of stuff which I could point out other people uh having caused you know in my in my non in my joint retreats in my group retreats so then that made me remember the story of the the monk who decided he would do a solo retreat and he was he was very prey to anger and he really wanted to get rid of his anger so he set off across the fields to his retreat place on a mountain and at the bottom of the mountain there was a farmer and the farmer said oh hey what you up to he said, I'm going to do a solo retreat. Said, Great. Okay. Well, um, I might well be here when you come back. So have a good retreat. And off he went. He did very, very, very hard training, as we say. And uh, he really felt like he actually, unlike myself with my fear, he actually felt like he had actually vanquished anger. So he finished up the retreat very happy and came back down the mountain and who would be there but that very same farmer who said, hey, Sunim, bowing probably to him, I can see that you've done your retreat. How was it? Oh, it was fantastic. I completely, completely, completely uh, got through everything. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I, there's not even any more anger. Really? No more anger. No more anger. Oh, it's so fantastic. I feel so free really gosh that's amazing so not even a tiny tiny little bit of anger no no more anger wow so not even gosh i mean how does one even do that no more anger no more anger and you can see where this is going what no no anger no anger and I don't know what happened next because that's not recorded, but it must have been, <laughs> someone must have laughed a lot. So that wasn't my experience, but I did like that. It's that the human again, it's like we are humans and we do have these things and they do come up and, and our job is to look at them because then we can appreciate everybody else has this stuff going on, everybody else. And how can we be with them in their difficult places? as they can allow us to be with us in our difficult places. And that was, just to say one last thing, this, that was a huge lesson with Roger and me, that um, and, and being helped by the, the um, healthcare professionals who were well used to all this stuff. It was okay to be angry with one another, 
and then the anger would go away. But it was like, are we really allowed to do this? Yes. Sometimes you just have to let off steam because it's, it can be excruciating being with another person in whatever condition they're in. And being with ourselves is excruciating. So we have to keep on practicing because <laughs> that's life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Lizzie Coombs, Gita Popesanim, encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the York Zen Group at yorkzen.com. I'll include a link to the Zen Group in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.